Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 44, Private Dancer. Don't look at me. I'm one of these Chippendale guys. You rod the bot. Just tell me it's not the 70s again, okay? It is. It's October 6, 1979. New York City, New York. This is horrible. What are you complaining about? Most guys would kill to be in a room full of screaming, sex-crazed women. (laughs) Want nothing more than to... Treat me like a piece of meat. Ah! Exactly. What am I here to do? Well, no one... 24 hours. 24 hours? What am I supposed to do in the meantime, huh? Shake your booty. She's deaf. Which is the reason you're here. Diana? Yeah. Diana Quinna. Middle of her senior year. She never graduated from high school? Uh, No, she came to New York a year and a half ago, and since then, she hasn't been able to keep one job that she got. Well, what about her parents? Aren't they looking for her? No, they died in a car crash when she was seven, and she suffered a severe head injury. That's how come she lost her hearing. How am I going to help her? Well, there's a couple of ways. Next month, she gets arrested for prostitution. What? I'm afraid so. And before it's over, she gets arrested 26 times. That's terrible, Al. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. When you said before it's over? Well, it's over in 86 when she dies of AIDS. Hello, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. We are your hosts, Allison Pregler. Christopher DeFilippis. And Matt Dale. And we're going to be talking about the season three episode, Private Dancer, today. Along with that, we got an interview with the wonderful Debbie Allen. She played dancer Joanna Chapman and also directed the episode. And Albie was lucky enough to sit down with her and talk about her time on Quantum Leap and her accomplished career. That is a heck of an interview, boy. (laughs) I gotta say. (laughs) Everybody should be looking forward to that one. Very, very good work, Albie. Oh, man. He was really lucky to talk to her. She's great. She's got a hell of a career behind her as well, hasn't she? Yeah, so you guys have that to look forward to, definitely. And we're going to be getting deeper into her character and all the stuff going on in this episode. But first, we need to talk about our initial impressions. So, uh, Matt, what'd you think of Private Dancer? Oh, this this is another one of those slow burners, isn't it? Um, I remember, oh, I, I feel like I'm being the old timer here. I remember when I first saw it back on the first broadcast in the UK years ago. It was that dull episode about dancing. <laughs> really? Um, yes. I, oh, come on. I, I was 12, um, a 12-year-old boy, a, a, an episode about dancing did not appeal. <laughs> Saw it again years later and realised how wrong I was. It's it's a beautiful episode. Um, well, I, I don't want to go into too many specifics because we'll we'll talk about it more later. But uh, yeah, I think um, the, there's so many so many wonderful elements to it. But uh, it was definitely a slow burn for me. Mm. Chris, what do you think? Um, <laughs> Matt, I I'm right oh dear. I'm right there with the 12 year old you. <laughs> I don't know if I've gotten past that part of it yet. <laughs> you asked Allison, you know, what did I think of this show? I honestly, I it's not one I think about often. Like Matt said, it was the dance episode. It was almost like a 
perfunctory episode of Quantum Leap in many ways, and it never stuck with me besides saying, oh yeah, that one. And upon a rewatch, <laughs> kind of know why. So we'll get into that. <laughs> well, I, th- I think I'm a little more optimistic than you guys. I, uh, I liked this one. Uh, I think it's fun. Um, I think it's a good encapsulation of music in the 70s um, with some very interesting characters and uh, cinematography. And uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, um, you know, to that point, yeah, it's a well-crafted episode and a well-shot episode. Oh, for sure. I don't yeah. think there's any yeah. episodes that are, like, <laughs> made really badly anyway. <laughs> oh, you says that damning with faint praise, huh? <laughs> this is certainly one of one of the better ones in terms of the cinematography. Um, this is a real highlight. Well, it sounds like we've all got, we've got like, a wide spectrum of mm. uh, feelings on this episode, more than some of the other ones, so I'm interested to get deeper into that. Uh, but before we do that, let's throw to the episode recap. Season 3, episode 14, Private Dancer. Leap date, October the 6th, 1979. Original broadcast date, March 20th, 1991. Written by Paul Brown. Directed by Debbie Allen. When Sam taught Captain Galaxy his string theory, he did not mean a G-string. Sam literally leaps onto a stage wearing an erotic costume and is immediately kissed and groped by dozens of screaming women. Al, who has just arrived, is extremely amused, sings along to Ladies' Night, and wishes that he was in Sam's position to be degraded. Sam is Rod the Bod, a touring male stripper. Stressed, Sam wants to get out of this leap as quickly as possible, but Al says they won't have any information for 24 hours and advises Sam to shake his booty. After Sam has dressed and composed himself, he goes back into the club and orders a beer at the bar. He notices that one of the waitresses, Diana Quinna, is ignoring many of the people who are talking to her, including customers trying to make drink orders, and Mario, her boss who owns the club. Sam notices one of the women who has been in the audience during his show, Joanna Chapman, tearing up the dance floor. Sam joins in, albeit with a what am I doing look on his face, as does Diana before she is told to get back to work. Sam is very impressed with Joanna's and Diana's moves. It's not surprising that Joanna can dance. She is a choreographer for a major dance company, and having wowed her on the dance floor, she informs Sam of an open audition she is holding. Much more surprising is Diana's dance talent, considering, as Sam has figured out, that she is deaf. Al returns and explains that Diana is an orphan. She became deaf from a head injury obtained in the car accident that killed her parents. She has not graduated from high school and is unable to hold down a job, and in desperation will turn to prostitution and ultimately die of AIDS in 1986. Diana can read lips, so she can hold a conversation with others without too much trouble if they speak directly to her and not too fast. Sam speaks to Mario and tells him that Diana is deaf. Mario is surprised, having thought she was just foreign, but is intrigued with the idea of a deaf stripper. Sam tells him that Diana is a waitress, not a stripper, and makes a deal that Rod will do more performances at his club in exchange for not allowing Diana to perform at bachelor parties. Sam finds Diana practicing a dance routine. She can dance to music even though she can't hear it because she can feel the vibrations of the music. Sam offers to walk her home. Despite her protest that she doesn't want him around and finding his behavior patronizing, ultimately Sam and Diana bond and form a friendship. Sam encourages Diana to audition for Joanna. The next day, Mario tells Diana 
about the deal he'd made with Sam. Diana is furious and worried that she won't make enough tips to make it through the winter. Both Mario and Valerie Nevsky, Mario's assistant at the club, offer to loan her some money, but she refuses to take handouts. Valerie thinks she may be able to book a gig for her. Sam has been reading a book about sign language and teaches Al how to sign Quantum Leap. Diana barges in, slaps Sam angrily, and tells him to stay away from her. But Sam tracks her down at the van she is living in. Sam again encourages Diana to audition for Joanna, but she is worried that her style is very different to Joanna's and that she does not have enough experience. So, Sam helps her practice. At the audition, Diana does very well, making it past two cuts, but does not understand some of Joanna's instructions when they are given quickly and not directly to her. Sam explains that Diana is deaf, and while Joanna is very impressed with Diana's talent, she's worried that Diana won't be able to keep up with a fast pace if she can't understand the instructions, so reluctantly cuts her. To make matters worse, Diana's van and all of her belongings have been towed away. With nowhere else to turn, Diana takes Valerie up on the gig, or date, that she was offered. Sam finds out and tracks Diana to the hotel room. He convinces her that this is the wrong path, and she ultimately decides not to go through with it. Diana re-auditions for Joanna, giving a breathtaking performance, and Joanna slaps Sam for almost letting her let Diana get away. Joanna pulls Diana in for a hug, apologizes, and accepts Diana into the dance troupe, thinking that they will be able to teach each other. I'll tell Sam that Diana makes it. In three years, she becomes Joanna's leading dancer, and she also finishes high school. Al signs that it's time for Sam to quantum leap, and he does. Thank you, Zoe, for that recap, and Hayden for writing it. So let's get into the main meat of the episode. A big theme of this was music and dance. I really enjoyed the music in this one. I feel like there was that other episode in season two, uh, Disco Inferno, that was very 70s. Mm -hmm. But there was this strange focus on country music in that one. Yes. And right. uh, and I don't know if it was really that essential 70s in it. And I feel like in this one, they really captured the spirit of that era. I think having Dean Stockwell singing along to Ladies' Night right at the start was a, <laughs> just a, a great way to throw into that and say, yeah, we're embracing it this time. This, this is 70s. I'll agree with you guys there. Um, for an episode that I'm not crazy about, the beginning is very, it, it grabs you. It's very engaging. And mm. boy, Scott can sure cut a rug, huh? I mean, <laughs> Sam is nervous about dancing as Rod the Bod, but then when he gets on the dance floor with Debbie Allen, it's almost like he's he's been in a professional dance troupe his entire life, even to, almost like a backflip or something. Mm -hmm. That was so impressive because uh, Scott Bakula was still recovering from his ankle injury when he did this. Yeah. No, I didn't, had no idea. You, you would never know it. All that intense choreography. And you know, I love that moment of him dancing with Joanna because this is that's one of the few moments where Sam's really enjoying himself on a leap. Yeah, and it's such a contrast to when he leapt in and sort of that mob scene that he was besieged by. And I would like to talk about that a little later. But you went from it being almost like a parody of a dance club with all these male strippers to them almost doing a 180 in the first act and embracing that entire scene and celebrating it instead of mocking it. Because remember, I mean, back in, in the 90s when this came out, I know that disco has made a huge resurgence now. But back then, like disco was a joke. 
So whenever they had it on TV, it was always the butt of a joke. And this might be one of the first shows that, that okay, we're in this era. Let's not make fun of it. Let's embrace it. And now it plays just fine because everybody loves disco again. But I think they let you into that gently by pushing the jokes towards Naked Sam. You know, ha- having Sam escape into the... Uh, all right, not Naked Sam. Sam. Sam escaping into the dressing room covered in, in lipstick marks. And that's where they kind of push the humour to. And so let's, you know, we're not going to joke about disco. Disco's awesome. Let's just, just roll with it. And um, I think that's how they deflect from that. Well, and this episode is such a celebration of music and dance. So, I mean, they're not hating on it. They're embracing it and enjoying it. And and I feel like uh, this was something that was really close to Debbie Allen, too. I felt like it was something she was passionate about. You do get to see Sam doing some amazing dancing in this. And it's obviously a testament to Scott's ability to withstand pain and, and his professional skills. But this is one of the classic examples of, is there anything that Sam cannot do? Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a mental genius. He's got doctorates everywhere. He's, he's, when did he suddenly become this graceful dancer? But it is a brilliant excuse to show off one of Scott's skills, and um, it's, yeah, it's so great to see. Do you think, like, when he was practicing dancing, he was also reading The Feminine Mystique? <laughs> it's like, he's a multitasker. <laughs> I think it shows in his dancing. It was it was very feminist dancing. Well, yeah. you have to realize what he was doing. Um, throughout the week, he would go into his studio, stand up at the piano, tap dance, play a sonata, while The Feminine Mystique, <laughs> Mystique was on the, the music stand in front of him. Sam is smart. He can multitask. So that's how he got all this stuff done. <laughs> you know, another thing about um his leap in into like a, a stripper like i i forgot until rewatching that this was actually chippendales like i thought it was some sort of generic thing that was chippendales but not like uh the rupenthals or something like yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're like that's that chippendales star i wonder if they had to pay for the rights to say chippendales or is that now just so ubiquitous with male stripping you never see like a logo or anything for like Chippendales, which is weird, right? Like, because it's not actually a Chippendales like club. I suppose not. Yeah, they never they never said that specifically on the show. No, because I think in the script it's called like you know Mario's Lounge or something. Mm. It's his thing, but he's calling it Chippendales. Is he ripping them off? <laughs> he, That's a whole knockoff Chippendales. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe he maybe he rents out the Chippendales name. He leases it. <laughs> There was a great cut line that I wish they'd kept, but I know why it was cut. Where uh, you know Sam comes in and he's got all like the money in his in his g string, and and Al's looking at him, and he, he points at it and goes, "Nice wad." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish they would have left that in. <laughs> oh boy. Well, let me ask a question because it's one thing that I did notice in the beginning of this episode. It's so over the top with the mob scene. And Sam even has this really weird line about gladiators in ancient Rome. <laughs> at least yeah. at least somebody killed them if they were you're set free. I it was I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was so incongruous to the situation. It was <laughs> so forced. But he is literally getting attacked and groped and mauled by a gaggle of screaming females. And the only thing I could think of is that in any strip club I've been to where there are female strippers, 
if you so much as look at them sideways, you're thrown out on the street. <laughs> well, it would probably be the same with, with male strippers, too. I, I think you probably, the crowd can't be groping them. <laughs> see, this is what I, because this is a trope that you see on TV a lot, is that when, you know, when the ladies go out to see the male strippers, they go nuts and they start pawing at them and they start grabbing them. And in my experience with strip clubs, limited as it may be, but, you know, I'm a grown man. I've been to a few in my time. You really cannot act like that. Mm. Is that something that females can do in a male strip club? Allison, comment. <laughs> oh, that was smooth, Chris. Smooth. I've, well, I've never been to a strip club. So, so I can't speak to that, but I would think that they would protect the workers and that you couldn't just grope at them. Is is this not a sign of the times, though? I mean, this, this is the 70s. It, can we not just assume things were a little more relaxed back then with male and female strippers? It's possible. It's also possible that, like, maybe Rod, before Sam leaped in, was playing it up and was okay with it. Mm-hmm. It's possible, you know, like, if if he wasn't okay, you know, there would be some distance or something. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not sure on that. Oh, I, yeah, and here's the thing. It's, like, Rod's choice, and he's probably, you know, he's an exhibitionist. He's in his glory at that point because he's center stage, and the entire focus of the world is on him at that moment and then sam poor sam who is the most modest guy in the world leaps Mm -hmm. into that scenario and yes (laughs) it makes for great comedy yeah rod probably would have let them grope him and that's more more of a wad down his pants because they're just giving him the money anyway (laughs) but i guess yeah i guess it just goes to my point of it it's sort of almost like a double standard that you see on tv a lot is that you know women can go nuts in a strip club and it mm. just strikes me as just so weird. So if there are any listeners out there who can who can speak to this authoritatively, <laughs> is that just like a TV trope? Or is that is that is that real life? It it just strikes me as so strange. That's all. <laughs> it sort of is TV's double standard though, as as far as uh, male and female sexuality though. Like with men it is played for comedy more. Yeah. In these kinds of situations. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say so, sure. I wanted to to get into this episode's relationship with uh stripping and prostitution mm. coming from yeah from that. sure um yeah because um i i keep going into like these scripts uh that, that i read but i did read a an earlier version of this and um i feel like the final product is very improved and it has largely to do with that because there's this really negative focus on prostitutes in the the original script and there's there's bits of it here but i think that they fixed it in some key ways um because the way that the original script goes it's basically like well being a prostitute is the worst and she's gonna end up being like one of those women and sam's like pointing out to some like you know crusty woman across the road like that could be your future and, and there's all this real negativity there um as in like it's just the worst thing ever to be a sex worker oh my god Wow. And uh, in the in the way that this episode goes, um, well, actually, there's another thing in the script too. I wanted to talk about um, Rod's character has a little bit more backstory in that his knee injury, which they reference briefly uh, in the final episode, is the reason why he's dancing because he couldn't fulfill his dreams of doing some sport thing or something or other. So basically, he just had to settle for this, mm. and the implication being. That you ha- your life has to suck if you are a dancer or if you are a prostitute, and it's basically your last option. And the way that the final episode is, I felt like 
There was a difference between Rod's situation and Diana's situation. Diana eventually dies of AIDS, and her life goes down that path, and that's why it's negative for her. But with Rod's situation, they never really address that it is a negative thing. His life is just different. And he's not a prostitute, but there there involves, you know, stripping and sexuality and stuff like that. And so I feel like it was better to have a more positive uh, look at it rather than just if you are a prostitute, you will die of AIDS or something bad will happen to you. But I think that also goes back to to Chris's point that Rod is a guy. So um, nudity and being mauled every day is kind of fun. It's not an issue. It's not seen as a bad thing in the world of TV. <laughs> Sorry, just to establish. Definitely there, Matt. But also, Alison, to speak to your point, I found this episode to be extremely judgmental. There was such an undercurrent of negative judgment on anyone who might be a dancer or a sex worker. Or I mean, it started out with the AIDS thing as just like a, a blow between the eyes because how often did you talk about dying of AIDS that baldly on network TV at that time? AIDS was still oh, sure. relatively mm-hmm. new on the scene. It was still relatively taboo. And they just came out and said it. That shocked me a little bit. That was hard for them to get that in there, too, because I remember that they said that they tried to do an episode about AIDS forever, and they just couldn't get it off the ground because it was so difficult to talk about back then. Yeah. Yeah, but there was also, I think, maybe why they were able to get it through was just that undercurrent of judgment that permeated this episode. I mean, skipping ahead a little bit, but like you said, Allison, it, it was just like if you're an entertainer or a stripper or a sex worker, it can only lead to a bad end. And um, there's that point, it, it's very, since we're talking about the prostitution angle, okay, so you got Mario, he's a sleazeball, and he's he's sort of two-dimensional, but where it gets really interesting is when Valerie's the one that swoops in and blindsides Diana and sort of tricks her or manipulates her into going to this party. They never really, it's not even party, it's a quote date, which is basically, here's the John, there's the hotel room, you know what you gotta do. I'll even buy you a dress. They never really explored that angle of it. I mean, Sam calls her out on it, but in an episode that I found a little bit trite and a little bit predictable in many ways, this was a very interesting wrinkle, and I wish they would have explored it a little bit deeper because there was so much weird subtext going on there, and it it, it kind of transcended the booming morality that we got in a lot of this episode. What's the other thing that happens? Um, <laughs> Diana goes off and she's like the lead dancer in Debbie Allen's troupe. And Dean says, yeah, in three years, she's going to be number one. But you know what? She finishes high school, too. And that's the most important thing. Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> it's like, when did this become an after school special? <laughs> why was Al so anti-hooker was the thing I was I was uh, hung up on. This is more in the, in that other script that I read, but there's still elements of it here. And I'm mm. like, Al seemed pretty pro-hooker before. I don't know why. <laughs> That's how she got into hooking, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess maybe, who knows, there could be a double standard. I mean, Al's from a different generation and he sometimes does what the script requires him to do. But you're right, Alice, in, in his character, I don't know that he would be specifically adverse to hookers. He's been around the world in the military. I'm sure he's run into a couple in his day. 
So yeah. I, I think it's just, again, something maybe they had to do because the morals police was saying, okay, if you're going to talk about AIDS, there has to be consequences because yeah. mom and pop America are watching this show and they need to know if they're watching with their kids that um, sex doesn't pay, crime doesn't pay, eat your vegetables and finish high school. <laughs> I think you're right that there is still that undercurrent of judgment, of being judgmental in this episode. I feel like it is improved from what it was, but it, there is stuff about, you know, he he tells um, Valerie's uh, character that I'm not going to judge the way you live your life, but if you could do it again, would you do it the same way? And they have this implication that she hates her life, she wouldn't do it that way. And so... He, there is a little bit of that in there. But there's a lot of it still in the final episode. Uh, one one more thing I want to point out about that scene when he confronts her. He walks away to go, you know, rescue Diana. And Valerie says, I never got a nice guy. Yeah. The yeah. implication <laughs> being that if somebody had some some great man had swooped in and rescued me, I wouldn't be where I am right now. See, kids? It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no, you're absolutely right. That's the lesson to take from that. Find a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> Find someone to rescue you, girls. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I liked that Al dated uh, a deaf girl. They went into that a little bit. Uh, I like that story that he tells about you. Know, she wouldn't sleep with him. Smartest one that he ever knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was a nice way to get into sort of the deaf angle to make it more relatable to the characters, I guess. I mean, Sam seemed to be a bit at sea about it, and Al being Al, you know, the magic traveler, fixer, <laughs> <laughs> encyclopedia of all life experience. He's he's seen and done everything. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it was a good way for Sam to become a surrogate of the audience, but also for one of the characters to be able to explain stuff to the audience. Al sort of like always knows someone sort of related to what's going on, doesn't he? Yeah. Like he's like, I there was a deaf girl that I had a thing for. Oh, I had lots of black friends during this, uh, dur during the, uh, I, whatever. I was friends with a pool <laughs> legend. I ran away with the circus. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. He knew everyone from all walks of life. Exactly. I had AIDS, but I beat it. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I had AIDS, but I beat it. No, what? Yeah, let's... <laughs> Yeah, that, I don't know if they would if they would play the comedy angle with that so much. Comedy AIDS. <laughs> yeah, I had AIDS once, Sam. <laughs> I got better. <laughs> Sam, I went, one of my my third, no, fifth wife, she had AIDS. She, <laughs> <laughs> this is a little dark. Yeah. We, we can cut this out. We don't have to keep it in. I, um, I think we have to. <laughs> no, I, I just want to stress, if this is kept in, um, AIDS is a serious subject. Um, I, I only think it's funny if they handled it very poorly. <laughs> Which, fortunately, they, they did not. I don't think they handled that poorly, because it really wasn't a, a huge focus of the episode. It was the, the danger, but they didn't go too much into AIDS, really. No, they just used it as a boogeyman. Yes. And usually... Um, I mean, AIDS was such a huge thing, and it was so tied into gay culture. And a lot of shows, if they did tackle it, took that element out. It, it would be involved with um, someone in a straight relationship, which isn't to say that it didn't happen, of course. But I don't know. I just, I just found that kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, the big focus of this episode is Diana. And Diana being a deaf dancer. So how did you guys feel about how deaf culture was handled in this episode? Well, firstly, I, I've got to say, it, it's, it seems very obvious that the, the deafness is a focus, but apparently not to any of the people that work with her or hired her. 
did no one talk to her at any point? <laughs> he, she had an accent, and he yeah. thought she was French or something. <laughs> it, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's one of the few real problems I have with this episode. Is it's so unbelievable that Sam figures out she's deaf um, after all this time? Shocking. Well, she's she's functional enough that she can read lips most of the time, which is which is pretty good for someone just reading lips. Like she gets a lot out of that. Oh yeah, if she stays quiet, um, she can uh, she can get away with it. But uh, it's hard to believe that she'd have been able to stay mute the whole time. But yeah, like, like you say, maybe maybe they thought she was French. And also, I mean, could the implication also be that she hadn't been working there that long because they would have found out eventually so maybe she'd only been there for a few nights or a week or so it's not that uncommon for like not to know all of your co-workers especially in a big club like that and you're kind of busy moving all the time so it's possible like she you know they just hadn't noticed yet yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean you're, Matt, you're you make right. a good point she did blend in pretty well <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so in terms of the, uh, just, just to kind of go back to answering your question, cause I did have a point there. I wouldn't say I have a great deal of friends in deaf culture, but I, I would imagine that, um, integrating into a workplace that's full of people that are not only hearing, but not aware that you're deaf. So not giving those kind of extra considerations that, that Sam talks to, um, to Debbie Allen about later on. I imagine that would be extremely difficult. Um, and they, I don't think they address that that too much. They don't seem to focus on that that much, which surprised me. But uh, yeah, like I say, I, I, I come from quite a, an ignorant background in that, in that respect. Well, if I can jump in, Alison, I think that um, the deaf culture in this was handled just fine. It was a pretty good exploration of what one person's experiences might have been uh, as a deaf person at that time. And it wasn't so much the deaf stuff that I had an issue with the way it was presented in this episode. It was all the rest of Diana's story, <laughs> which which we can get into. But the, the, the focus, when they did focus on the fact that she was deaf and sort of the struggles that she went through to just be considered normal and mm. her adamant, adamant insistence that she not be pitied or coddled or take a hand yes. out or, I mean, that I really liked about the character. Um, but then the rest of the script happened. <laughs> and that, and that, Chris, that w what you've just said for me is the bigger theme of the episode. Um, to me, this isn't specifically an episode about deaf people and deafness. This is an episode about someone who is very vulnerable and is desperately trying to prove that she can be independent. And and the deaf aspect is a reason for that. I think you could translate that to a lot of other um a, a lot of other topics. But to me that's what that's that's the center to Diana's character. It's it's the independence, it's the vulnerability and it's the uh it's the attempt to to, to fit in and like you say Chris not to be pitied and a, a big focus of her story she is a deaf character um, but really it is about her becoming a dancer and making it and turning her life around and that just happens to be part of who she is um, you know a lot of her story is about her confidence in, in who she is and uh, they have that great exchange between her and Sam where she says what if I'm not good enough 
He says, well, what if you are? <laughs> and it, yeah. that was a great uh, summation of it. And, um, you know, what I really liked, too, is a lot of stories that uh, have an, an episode about deaf people can have this focus on fixing deafness or the, their other or or they have a handicap. And a lot of deaf people don't see it that way. You know, they're like, it's not a handicap. It is another culture. You know, they don't. Um, they have their own language, their own social norms, their own society, and uh, that's why some deaf people uh, are against uh, the implants, uh, you know, that they can hear a little bit and, and things like that, because um, they don't see why they have to conform to how other people are, how hearing people are. It's funny you say that, because I was in Manhattan just last weekend. I was coming home late at night on the subway. And I was just standing in the car waiting to get to my stop. And there were three people a little ways down the car. It was a packed car. And nobody was really talking. You know, subways these days, people have their earbuds in or their their nose in a book or a newspaper, or they're just staring off into the middle distance, trying not to be noticed. But there were these two people on one side, one person on the other side, vigorously signing and laughing at each other. And they were having a ball. And I looked at them and I thought, are you guys? Because I knew we were going to be talking about this episode. But I said, you know, what are the odds? And am I noticing this now just because I knew we were going to be talking about it here? Or it, it, I, No, I can say no, because I've never seen anything like that on the subway before. And it was, it was just funny, the timing of it, you know? Mm. So, Allison, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it didn't seem to be an impediment to them. So uh, I actually talked to one of my friends, uh, and you know her, Matt. She runs that uh, Quantum Leap Analysis blog, and she helped out with the book. Yeah, she had a lot of good advice for the book. Uh, my friend, our friend, Kelsey, uh, she is deaf. And so this episode obviously is more personal to her. So I asked her if she would write something up about how she feels about the episode. And she talked to her best friend, who is also deaf, and they had sort of uh, differing viewpoints on it. So do you guys want to take a look at uh, at what they wrote? Yeah, that, yeah I think that'd, that'd be, be a great. fascinating thing to hear about. Okay, so it's uh, it's written in the style of a discussion. So I will read the parts of uh, Kelsey. And Matt, do you want to read the part uh, that Megan wrote? I certainly will. One thing I don't like about a lot of TV shows and movies featuring a deaf character, they tend to have this character be obsessed with wanting to hear or even wanting to hear music. In my experience, many hearing people, when they find out I'm deaf, usually say something like, but you can't hear music or the birds outside. That's so tragic. For example, take the movie Listen to Your Heart. It's seen as a tragedy that the deaf girl in the movie can't hear music. But Quantum Leap does not do that at all, which I really appreciate. I also like that they show how Diana enjoys music in her own way, which isn't done much in media. I recently showed this episode to my best friend Megan, who is also deaf, and we discussed it a bit. I don't like how the episode was centred around music. That's a hearing thing. I feel it should have been more about communication. But there was plenty about communication. Diana struggles with talking to other people and overcomes that. But that was related to the lack of opportunity she had. It was also the time period too. It seems like every deaf character talks about music, not so much recently. But not every deaf person's like that. No, that's true, about the music thing coming up less often in media now. How was it in the time period? No ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, no rights, etc., when the episode was set. Right, since it was set in the late 1970s. Mario says in the episode that he's an equal opportunity employer, but that didn't apply to disabled people. 
There were other aspects of the episode that I liked too, like Sam acknowledging how hearing people are afraid to screw up around deaf people. I also liked how they showed Diana's struggles with communication to some extent. Take the silent shot that's from her perspective when she's auditioning. You can see the angry body language of everyone facing her and feel her panic. I've been through that exact scenario in real life. There were a few times where Diana was a little too good with understanding other people, like when she talks to Otto near the beginning or when Sam looks away when talking to her. I think it's interesting how the script glosses Sam's sign for Quantum Leap as Glow Jump. (laughs) (laughs) For both me and my best friend, the sign they went with ended up looking more like Magic Jump. I think the sign for Bright, instead of what looked like Magic, would have been better for what they were trying to go for. Well, Allison, doesn't that speak to your point? Sam sleeping is, it, it, it's magic. It's, it's basically magic. magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What it says in the script, because, you know, I talked to her about this and she was wondering what they were signing because there is sort of differences in sign vernacular. Sometimes mm-hmm. it is sort of um, made up or changed depending on the scenario. So in the script, what they wrote it as was the sign for glowing light and then leap or jump. And she didn't know that's what they were going for because it is sort of, you know, you kind of have to interpret what they're doing there. (laughs) (laughs) That's good because that answers a niggle I've had for years, which is Sam's waving around this um, dictionary, I guess, that's pretty thin and it it seems to have the uh, uh, i guess it's not a complete dictionary it's obviously slimmed down and yet it has the word quantum in it yeah Um, that always bugged me but actually if if it's glow or magic or something that's a little bit more plausible but uh yeah i I never quite bought that he'd find quantum leap in a book like that (laughs) i took that as sam he's a pretty smart guy he probably thought of a couple synonyms and he liked magic jumping better too so (laughs) well you know what i was wondering about this because um I was curious about the script for this one because I wondered how they wrote the ASL stuff. And it was written exactly like you would think, you know, just things in parentheses are in sign language. So whoever's in charge of that when they make the episode uh, do that. I I don't really know exactly how they did it here. I was wondering, like, if they just had uh, the actress uh, Rondi Beralt, I think is her name. Mm -hmm. Um I wondered if they had her just interpret it or or what they did there. And what Kelsey said was she had done some acting and like in plays. And a lot of the times they will have a ASL expert on set or on stage or whatever, even if the actors are uh, are deaf and do sign just to make sure that it's uniform. Because mm. like any other language, there's... Um, different ways of saying different things. And so they want to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Hmm. That's interesting. Fascinating. Well, I think that's a great insight. And I was always um, curious to know when Diana was yelling at Sam through signing on the street. And he said, I I don't understand what you're saying. And she said, now you know how I feel. And she Mm -hmm. walked away. Mm -hmm. But I mean, she seemed to be saying an awful lot. And it seemed to be really angry. I wonder, was there any kind of transcription of that in the script? Or? I think it was just like angry signing. And I want to <laughs> say that Kelsey probably wrote what she actually was saying at some point, but I, I don't know offhand. Okay. Well, I I got, um, I, I have a, a deaf friend who I, I worked with on this episode when I was researching for the book. He oh. translated this as, you're bothering me, leave me alone. Ever since I was seven years old, I can do it myself. That that was his interpretation of it. Okay, and that's that's when she lost her parents, right? Yeah, yeah. That's when she lost she she got into the accident and she lost her hearing. 
Yes. Okay. Again, going back to your point, Allison, with uh, how did they handle the deaf culture in this? They handled it like, like champs. I really enjoyed that aspect of it, but why did they have to make Diana's character just this side of the hooker with the heart of gold? I mean, she was headed to being the hooker with the heart of gold. You know what? I Sam, bet- Sam saved her, and it was just like, it was so treacly, and I'm sorry, the dance stuff was just like, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> oh, Chris, you've got no heart. I loved the uh, the dancing in this though because I I thought the the cinematography and the choreography was just gorgeous like the scenes of um, Sam and Diana dancing um, to those strobe lights and and that slow um, lowering to her to the dance floor and uh, and that last uh, number set to daybreak in the red daybreak. dress. Yeah, when it does those the, the slow mo jump towards the camera. That's um, with that's the gorgeous. stunt double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah stunt, stunt double in slow-mo is never a good combination, especially not, not in high def. Was that the woman who was also uh, Debbie Allen's friend in the episode? Oh, I never thought about that. I think it was the blonde woman who I, I think was also a dancer on Fame. I think they probably knew each other th- through that. Um, I think it was that same woman, but in like a curly wig doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, at least it was a woman. You know, that's not, not always the case with stunt doubles. Yeah, yeah. And you're not yeah. wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, yeah, the choreography was beautiful. Like, the cinematography, beautiful. Everything about it sang, you know, to, to not not to make a pun or anything. But it's just like, <laughs> I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was another thing in the script I wish that they had kept. During that scene when Sam and Diana are dancing, in the script, the music just cuts out. And they're just dancing to the sound of a heartbeat, to just a rhythm. Oh, wow. And I think that would have been great. And it would have shown more of Diana's perspective of of how she feels the music, which would just be feeling the rhythm. And that would have been a very optimistic take on that, because I think the only time you really see things from Diana's point of view is where she's panicking during that the rehearsal. And everything suddenly goes silent and there's all the people in front of her. And that's that's quite it's realistic, but it's quite negative. I, I would have loved to have um to have seen her dancing like that without the music. That's um it's a nice take on it. It would demonstrate it a, a little more than um they have that scene where they're sitting on the the bridge and she's talking about what music means to her. Which uh, is is a little bit speechy and schmaltzy, but uh, yeah, a little, a little sort of gets to that point. Yeah, <laughs> a, a, a little. <laughs> I do love that shot too. By the way, it looked really pretty with them uh, in the the night on yes. the bridge over the water. Mm-hmm. I, I like it too. <laughs> but that's that's to me where the episode starts to go off the rails a little bit because it's just like. We like you enough already, Diana, and now they have to throw this really cheese whiz story on top of her struggle and make her- It's the stars in the sky. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, Oh my God. I feel bad because it's like, I like the way they portray the deafness and, and all that stuff, but then I feel like a heel because I hated everything that they made her do otherwise. And it's just like- is it okay to divorce one from the other and not come across as like an insensitive jerk? 
No, I, I, I think you can, it absolutely You can not is. like aspects of that story. Okay. Without, <laughs> I mean, it's not like you're like, I don't like that this was about a deaf person, right? <laughs> Why'd it have to be I'm a so, deaf person? A, am I like, I'm trying to like maybe bend over backwards to, you know, really stress that. It's, it's nothing to do with the deafness. It's to do no, with the writing. Well, that's exactly what this story is about, though. Like, it's about her as a person or as a character and not about the fact that she's deaf. Like, you're just treating it like this is how the story spoke to me or spoke to you, you know? All right. All right. Trending I just, tomorrow. I, hashtag Chris is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cross that line. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They did get kind of kind of wordy, though, in this episode, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, there, there was a thing in the script at the end where um, after she gets accepted in the dance academy and Sam's looking at her and they start signing to each other. In the script, it's like, I will really miss you or like some sort of, you know, like long sentence. And uh, in the final thing, it was just, you know, thank you and you're welcome. It was simple and it was great and it was a nice moment. Mm. Yeah, it was a a perfect little uh, touch for the leap out. And I'm not saying it didn't have its moments. I mean, when she was at that audition, I really genuinely felt bad for her. I felt a lot of empathy for the character. And... Also, there's that scene in the street where Sam just confronts her about it. You're not weak. I don't see you as weak, but what did he say? It's okay to let people help you. You don't have to do everything alone. And I mean, sometimes I have to remember that too, because you know, everybody does. You get so busy and you say, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And it's just like, okay, there are not enough hours in the day. How am I going to get this all done? Oh, wait a minute. You know, it's okay to let people help you. You don't have to do everything alone. It's like, I've had such a busy week. Hearing Sam say that was very opportune for me this week. You know, <laughs> so. But it, it goes back to that independence theme. She she has that, and, and all of us have that from time to time. I certainly do as well. But she's also trying to prove that she's she's still a normal functioning human being. So she's she's kind of got that extra hurdle to get over improving that, that she doesn't need help. You know, her story married nicely with the story of Debbie Allen's character, because Sam brings that up to her when she's saying, you know, I can't let her into this academy, you know, I've got to think for myself, you know, I I had a hard enough time getting this going uh, as a black woman. And he says, well, you know, if someone hadn't given you a chance, you wouldn't have what you have. Which which is lifted straight from a scene from Pool Hall Blues, if I remember rightly. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it, it's a lovely moment. It was a lovely moment the previous season as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, you're talking about the, the banker? The, the banker, yeah. yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's exactly the same concept and it's, that's fine. I, I, I don't have an issue with that because it, uh, it was worth revisiting. Well, I felt that also spoke to Debbie Allen's story as well. Yeah, you know, like I felt like that was something that um, she might as well have just been playing Debbie Allen in the episode because that's what she was doing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But she was good. I liked her energy. She was fun, and uh, I liked that that bit when she and uh, and her blonde friend are uh, are watching Sam leave, and then that that laugh. Oh, very uh, yeah. <laughs> that 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 weird double standard again. It's, it's completely objectifying the male. <laughs> <laughs> true, it's very true. It would be very different if the the genders were switched. <laughs> and it's not like I'm offended by it. It's 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 just it's just very funny to to notice it. I don't, you know, it's not MRA. I'm not on a high horse here. I just I think it it worked in the episode because it was funny. It's it's 
You know, it's just funny on a lot of levels to me. <laughs> this episode's kind of a bait and switch, though, right? Like, it's one of those that starts out like, this is going to be about Sam and a stripper. What's he going to do? <laughs> he, he never gets back up on that stage. He never does any of the stripping Night. again. Like, he just starts out in the Zorro outfit, and then after that, he's he might as well just be some guy who knows a dancer at a club. <laughs> <laughs> I never even considered that. You're absolutely right. And no, I, I wonder. I love noticing that. There's um, one of the comments in, in the official, in the in the the internal writer's guide is do not do that. Do not be tempted to <laughs> yeah. put Sam into an amusing situation which you then just move straight away from. And I, th- I think they, they give an example in, in the writer's guide of a, a bullfighter or something like that and they say, you know, <laughs> if, if you're going to do that, make sure he's actually, that that's made use of. But there's so many times they break that rule. And I hadn't noticed, but you're right, this this episode is a classic example of that, that rule. I think maybe it was just one of those cases of they had a good concept already, but they needed something that was more funny or interesting to leap into because he couldn't just leap in and then be like wait this woman's deaf oh boy I mean that'd be kind of (laughs) weird do you think also that maybe they wanted to play up that comedy angle but standards and practices got in the way I mean it's it's still stripping and nudity on primetime television so they did have um, I, I know they had a lot of like just concepts that they would throw around that they wanted to do, but they couldn't come up with a story that was acceptable to you know standards and practices. So it's possible that was one of them. I mean, maybe they, they say this is organic enough because we're going to talk about the, the evils and dangers of stripping and prostitution, but we need to get into it in a somewhat realistic way. So please let us have this funny leap in. We'll play it for comedy. You'll see Sam in the banana hammock for about <laughs> eight seconds total, and it'll be dark most of that time, and then we'll move on. We'll see his nice wad. <laughs> I I wonder if that was if there was some kind of intention behind that because I I guess when it was first broadcast, um, people would have seen that that leap in at the end of the previous episode and thought, oh yeah, th- this is going to be funny. Sam's going to spend the episode getting uh, getting mauled by women. How hilarious! And then after a week of expecting that, you then get hit with this very moral story saying no. No, no, touching is bad. There, yeah, there's a few of them like that where it's like, oh man, we're we are in for a good show. Oh, this isn't what this is about at all. Uh, yeah, uh. wait a minute. But it, it it must make the audience a little bit introspective as well. Just thinking, was I right to be thinking that was funny? <laughs> I've, I've spent a week thinking that was hilarious, and now actually, no, it's, well, it's not really. I w- I wish that they had talked more about Rod as a character and the fact that he didn't have a bad life as a dancer. It was a gig that worked for him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, but I also loved the. It wasn't such so much of a tacit admittance on Sam's part that Rod might not be the person that Sam is, but he did obliquely um, sort of allude to it. When he said something like to the to the fact to Diana, uh, you know, soon I may be gone, and it played two ways because Rod is a traveling mm-hmm. dancer, so I won't be here. Mm-hmm. But no, me, Sam, I'm gonna be gone soon, and that's him. Maybe even acknowledging that Rod could be a jerk. Rod might be the one that got her to go strip at the party to begin with. You know, y- y- you don't know what kind of character he is when Sam's not with him. Him being in that environment. And a character of that time, so to speak, I think he'd be more on the club side than mm. on the waitress's side. For sure. Well, is that uh, is that you sort of projecting some of that uh, 
some of the preconceptions, though, that that we're talking about, like just because he is a, a male stripper at a club, does that mean that he is someone of not strong moral character? Wow, Allison, hoisted on me own petard, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Podcast canceled. Sorry. <laughs> and Chris had nothing to say ever again. <laughs> Next week's podcast will be hosted by uh, Alison and Matt. <laughs> Kicked out, Chris. Sorry. Once I took over as the as the main part of this one, yes. it was my uh, my own way of shoving you out. Curses. <laughs> you mean I didn't show enough empathy to a guy who calls himself Rod the Bod? <laughs> hey, that was something they called him. He's he just sells an illusion. That's not him. <laughs> I love that line though that he said, "I sell an illusion. It's not me," because that applies both to Sam yes. and to Rod. Yeah, and yeah, also exactly. says, "Yeah, you don't know who Rod is as a character. He could have been a jerk, but he could have been just a guy who danced." Okay, sorry, Rod. He could have been a quantum physicist. <laughs> <laughs> You just never know. Quantum physicists can dance. <laughs> well, this one can. Yeah. All right. So do you guys have any final observations about Private Dancer? Well, can I go first? No. <laughs> can I come back on the all show, right, Allison? All right. Please. All right. Go ahead. Go for it. All right. I was trying, honestly, to figure out why. I didn't like this episode on a rewatch because I usually find something to like. And yeah, I, like I said, I did like the deaf culture in this and the way they portrayed it and the way they portrayed Diana as a strong character that refused to be coddled. At the same time, I didn't like the story that they gave her. I didn't like the way the story played out in many ways. And I'm just going to go right back to where Matt began. When it came down to it, all that's there, but all that's academic. There's just something in this episode that speaks to the nine-year-old boy in me, even though I was probably like 20 when it came <laughs> out, that, I'm sorry, this is a girl episode. It's all about dancing <laughs> and romance and, it, and lights and music. And, you do know, you it's think, like- Do you think that Scott Bakula is not about dance and romance and music and lights? I'm telling uh, you that so... it was just the unbridled nine-year-old in me <laughs> saying, ew, this is for girls. This is yucky. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't like um, Chippendales dancer Sam. That was that didn't appeal to you as a as a guy. I a refuse guy. to comment <laughs> on the grounds it may incriminate me. Matt, so what did you think? <laughs> I I am going to agree one hundred percent with Chris and disagree with him simultaneously. You um, you did like the Chippendales part, yes? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> um, this is a, a girl episode, um, but the. The wonderful thing about Quantum Leap is that it is something so very different every week. And I'm one of these people, I can appreciate um, chick flicks and, and rom-coms and uh, all, the, all the other girly kind of media, uh, stereotypically girly kind of media, as long as it's done well. And I do think this is done really well. And yeah, when I was, when I was 12, I couldn't see past the fact that, yeah, it, it was all about the dancing and the music. And um, I, I couldn't appreciate it for what it was. Um, some time has passed and uh yeah it's i i think it's it's a it's a really good episode um yeah i think in in talking about it over the last half hour or so um chris has, has opened my eyes to a few of the flaws um it's not it's not damaged it to me it's not spoiled it for me um i still think it's it's visually such a, a powerful episode and diana's story is one that i think we can all relate to in one way or another even those of us that are not deaf or part of deaf culture in some way. 
I think that it's an episode with some problematic elements. Um, what you guys pointed out is is true about um, how they handle um, strippers and prostitution and uh, and sort of the, the judgment involved in this. But um, I still enjoy it. I think it's well made. I don't really see it as a girly episode, but I mean... Obviously, I'm a girl, so I don't know how it is as, from you guys' perspective. Obviously, it came off a little bit different. You were carried away by the dancing and the romance and the starry-eyed delight. No, but you know what? The romance, the, I, you know what? Like, this isn't really getting into a final observation here. I'm just another thing. But um, the romance, I didn't find that prominent in it, though. Like, I kind of forgot it was even an element of it, um, because it just seems so much about the dancing and her confidence, and, and it, j- it never felt like they really were romantic. Th- there was the kiss, but it never felt like it, it was going anywhere. It, it just felt like it was affection. Yeah. All right, no argument. No argument. <laughs> <laughs> I just got back on the show. I don't want to leave again. <laughs> this episode was a big deal, too, wasn't it? Because Debbie Allen was directing. It got huge ratings. Yeah. So it's it seemed to have worked for people. Yeah, I think it was, wasn't it the highest rated episode besides the pilot? Are you kidding? Really? Something like that. Oh, you're gonna have to get you're gonna get me checking now. Yes, well, you're the authority. It, it was your book. That's how yeah, I Matt, knew that. That Matt, it did that well. Do your job, Matt. <laughs> I I can't remember this stuff. That's why. That's why I wrote it down. Matt, if you're gonna be co-hosting with me, then you're gonna have to get on the ball here. Okay. Or I'll, I can replace you just as quick as Chris. <laughs> Okay, it, it, it was not... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it was. It was the second highest rated episode. Genesis got 14.9 million. Um, Leap Back and Private Dancer both got 14.1 million. Leap Back, obviously, season opener, uh, going... Oh, 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 spoilers. Sorry, not meant to say what happens in the Leap Back. Um, but Private Dancer, what's what's the pull here? It's Debbie Allen. That's that can be the only thing that really pushed it um, way above the season average. Well, I think that's a good transition to throw to the break. And after that, we're going to be throwing to the interview with Debbie Allen. Hi, everybody. This is Sean Ray. And John Irons. And we're the hosts of Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk podcast. We're a show that has a little bit of everything. Yeah, we talk about movies and TV and cartoons, entertainment news, and every show has a different theme. That's right. We might discuss anything from our favorite bad movies to who would win in a fight between C-3PO and the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was episode 41, a classic uh, you can download that episode and all of our other episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, we're on Podcast Addict and, of course, on our website, CosmicPotato.com. It's special guests and movie news and geeky nerddom, nerdy geekery and lightsabers and Time Lords and Ninja Turtles all the way down. So check out uh, Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. This is Donald P. Belisario, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Hey everyone, we're back. Hi, hi, say hi everyone. Hi. Hi. Hi, Allison's let me back on the show. Hi. <laughs> so she said I could talk first for the, just this one time, but uh, I'm going to take full advantage of it. I just wanted to reiterate that Albie gave me the opportunity to talk to Debbie Allen and thank God I was working because the interview that you're about to hear with Debbie Allen, Albie is so much of a fan and so knowledgeable of her work and just 
everything about what she does and how she does it. I think you're you're in for a treat here that I couldn't have given you. So I just want to say thank you, Albie, and um, thank you, Debbie. And now here's our interview with Debbie Allen. Debbie Allen, it's an absolute honor to have you on the Quantum Leap podcast. How are you doing today? I'm terrific. I'm really happy to participate. Quantum Leap was a great um, experience for me. Uh, I really enjoyed working on that show with the cast and the crew. It was great. You directed two episodes of Quantum Leap, Private Dancer and Revenge of the Evil Leaper. In this one we're talking about today, uh, Private Dancer, you acted and directed. And I see that you do that a lot. You direct and act in the same thing. Is that difficult or is that like second nature by now? It's become second nature. It's kind of how I started on fame. I did the choreography on that show. And then when I started directing the show, I was already in it. So I was directing myself. And so I kind of learned how to do it. And um, yeah, it's kind of second nature. Can you tell me how uh, the deal with Quantum Leap came about? Did you get cast first, or did you get uh, signed as a director first? Or No, I was directing, darling. <laughs> I was actually busy producing and directing A Different World. Love that show. And I got the call from the producer and his wife that they wanted me to come and direct Quantum Leap. And I loved the show, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then I got an episode that was very complex and a lot of work, which was great for me. Private Dancer was an amazing episode uh, to direct a young girl who's actually deaf and to teach her how to feel the music and choreograph her and direct her. It was really quite a remarkable experience. She spent a lot of time here at my house. Oh, wow. Since you were directing it, did you have... Uh input into the casting how did how did you find this actor she is deaf in real life right yes totally wow um it was well it was very not so easy to find someone who was deaf that had dance ability so the casting director found her they said here here's who we think debbie take a look and i had a session with her and that was like hello yeah (laughs) but we created some things for her we created a, you know, because on Fame, I created a lot of things because no show had quite done what we did at the time. And I, I had created something called the Sync Pulse so that you could have, you know, the, the beat of the music, not the music, but the tempo while you were talking. And so I felt that we could create a pulse that was strong enough that she could feel the beat, even though she could not hear it. In the dance world, have you ever worked with any deaf dancers? Like, is that a thing? No, I've not worked with deaf dancers. I've worked with a lot of different, you know, people that were, that are autistic, um, people that have maybe a physical handicap, but never a deaf dancer. That that was the one experience, and I, it's encouraging to me. So we're talking about starting a class for young people that are deaf that mm. want to dance. Wow. Uh, that would be amazing. My daughter loves dancing. She's taken tap, ballet, and all that stuff. Oh, great. That's great. When you were working with Rondi, the uh, deaf actress that was dancing, yes, she had some dance talent, but was it difficult to get her to be at that level that she needed to be in the episode? 
No, it wasn't. And I pushed her. I pushed her hard. Was it difficult communicating or directing her because of her uh, difference in hearing? No, because she could read lips. And then when we were doing dance things, it was the physicality and the reading lips. She would understand what I was saying. It was an incredible experience for me to train her, and I really am going to do it again. Uh, that episode mostly, I think, is remembered for having the deaf dancer girl in it, but it also dealt with uh, some um, heavier topics like uh, prostitution and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, how, mm-hmm. how did you feel taking on an episode about those kind of issues? I was happy television was addressing it even then. They need to do more. But I I was very happy. I loved Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap would leap into places that were unexpected and very topical and very relevant. And that was a very relevant subject matter of, you know, young girls. You know, there's a lot of trafficking in young girls now. It's really bad. They're stealing girls out of Mexico and places in Europe and Africa and places and trafficking them. That's just horrible. Yeah, a lot of cruel things happening in the world. Yeah. But it's it's important that people know about them and address learn about it. them. Yeah. yeah, and address it, yeah. Figure out a way to move forward and not let that happen anymore. Could you tell me a little bit about Revenge of the Evil Leaper? That was a great episode written by Deborah Pratt, and uh, you were able to direct that. That was pretty cool. Well, you know, Deborah Pratt was someone who I knew back in New York because she used to be a dancer. Did you know that? I did not. I knew she sang, but I didn't know she danced. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sang and danced. Wow. And uh, Don Belisarius was her husband. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what was the beauty of Quantum Leap was that Michael Watkins was the director of photography. And, you know, no matter what you do, it's all about how do you capture it on film. And he and his crew were so amazing. And I loved you know, working with the actors. They were all so generous and very open, very open. Dean was open. Everybody was open. Is it difficult sometimes to come into a show that's already going and they know what they're doing and be the new person on set and be the director at the same time? Yeah, it can be difficult. But that has to do with how you come in and what you know and how you command the set. Any director worth their salt, I think, has command of the set especially in television, because most people are rotating. I was doing a lot of rotating until I became executive producing director of Grey's Anatomy. I was doing Scandal, How to Get Away, Empire, Grey's, Jane the Virgin. I mean, I was just doing uh, Insecure. I was doing all these things. And each show has its own DNA. And then you have who are the leading players. Everyone has their way of working, but you have to, you know, try to understand very quickly and, you know, find the rhythm of that so that they don't feel like you're somebody that's throwing them in a wrong direction or someone they don't want to listen to. This happens often in television. You act on Grey's also, uh, as well as executive produce and and direct. Is is it one of those things where if you're directing something, they say, wow, we have this such a talented legend here, we might as well find a part for her? Or is it just kind of understood that you're going to do it all when you join a project? No, I was directing uh, Grey's Anatomy, and we were having such a good time. Uh, When I was on set, there was a lot of laughter, the cast was happy, we had pretty you know, 
quick days, and um, they all know that I what I do. So one day Shonda Rhimes said, uh, you know, we're going to put you in the show. And I said, well, that'd be nice. Yeah. But, I, you know, people say things, but you don't always know they're going to really do it. But Shonda Rhimes, if she says it, I think it's going to happen, and it did. And she made me uh, Jesse Williams' mom, Jackson Avery's mom, which turned into a really wonderful... It, it was really probably even better for Jesse, for the character Jackson, than even for me, because now you had a sense of who he was, and the stories became just richer for him. You know, what were his issues? What were his problems? So, Sandra Rhymes, she's really good writer. Everything she does, everything she touches is just amazing. She's wonderful, and we learn from her every every day that we work with her, every day. Is that uh, very labor-intensive when you do it? Uh, like, it, are they long days? Are you on the set the whole time? Yeah, they're long days. You know, film is like a movie. A film series is like a movie that does not wrap. So we are, you know, part of my mandate when I took this position with the show was to try to make sure our days were 12-hour days, not longer. Because there was just a lot of 15-hour days and just 14-hour days, and that starts to wear the crew down. Because if you start at 7, a 12-hour day finishes at 8, and then you start at 7 again. So if you get really good, you can start at 7, finish at 6, and be back at 7 the next day. Finish at 7, be at 7 the next day. So if you have one day that goes 14 hours, it's not so bad. Going back to uh, Quantum Leap, and do you have any memories that stick out in your mind from uh, either acting or directing or anything to do with either of the episodes you're involved in? Yeah, I just started learning the technique of how they made people appear and disappear, which was very interesting. I think um, one of the most interesting experiences I had was I came in to do that first episode, Private Dancer. It was my first time directing that show, but I was a seasoned director. I'd done quite a bit. And then I had a producer who was asking me for a shot list. I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Here I was working with this adorable deaf girl in my home, taking that kind of time, spending hours and hours and hours getting her to be where she needed to be. And he's asking me for a shot list. (laughs) So it was almost Christmas time when I directed that episode. So I told him, I said, if you need a shot list, you know, I could be at home baking Christmas cookies. (laughs) I'm not, you know, ask a neophyte director for a shot list. Don't, don't, don't insult me like that. That I remember. (laughs) (laughs) But I also remember just having a fun time with the cast. They were great. They were so wonderful and so so much fun to work with. So much fun. Was it a, f- a good set? Like everybody was nice and kind to you? Yeah, everybody was good. Yeah, but I'm telling you, I fell in love with the DP. The same producer told me, well, you have to have a shot list because that Michael Watkins, the DP, he's just mean and he'll do this <laughs> and he'll do that. Child, please. Michael Watkins was like my best friend in like one day and I loved him and he adored me and everything I was trying to do, he would take it and make it better. That's what you want in a DP. You want somebody that you can collaborate with, not somebody you want to be afraid of. Like, oh, because a shot list means nothing. It means nothing until you block a scene and know this is what it's going to be. 
Because you get on a set and you block a scene, actors can change. They might say, you know, I, I these words don't work for me, Miss Allen. I've got to change this. Then the writer comes down, they change it, they rewrite it, and you end up what you end up with. And then it changes. So, you know, you must have a plan. So it's not like I don't have a plan. I absolutely have my own shot list. But that's not something I'm typing out, giving to somebody. No, not at this stage. No. <laughs> Uh, when you read a script, does it just all like pretty much appear in your head what you want to do? Well, first I read a script for understanding. I'm trying to understand the story and the characters and make sure it all makes sense before I start trying to block out this, that, and the other. You know, it's a little different when I'm on Grey's Anatomy. I can kind of do it at the same time because I'm so familiar. It's like being at home. But when I go somewhere new, I try to look at every episode of the show that exists before I get there, see what the DNA of the show is, try to find the DNA, and then bring it, bring my cinematic sensibility to it. Did you find, uh, uh, since you directed two different episodes of Quantum Leap, obviously they liked what you did and they had you back. Uh, was mm-hmm. it any different the second time around? It was just more fun. It was more fun because I was familiar. Everyone was familiar. It was more fun. I, I think most people associate you probably first thought would be fame. That's like, right. Like that's the first <laughs> thing I think of when I was, I think I was like seven or eight when I was watching that every week when it came on. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, fame and just how, how that was and how big in, in your life that was and uh, what it means to you? Well, fame was so big in my life that if I never did anything else, that would have done it because it was a show that, penetrated every market globally that had fans and that created performing arts schools everywhere around the world. And even, you know, after we were finished shooting fame, like 10 years later, I went to South Africa and they were doing a show that was fame, that was using all our storylines and everything because it was, you know, that good and classic that it could be copied and done again. Fame was something that was born out of that wonderful movie that Alan Parker directed. And uh, the way he directed it, it was so great. I was in the movie. I had a bigger part than what ended up on the screen because by the time it got to me, he had a 10-hour movie. (laughs) (laughs) So they gave me a dress and told me, we love you, Debbie Allen, but thank you. And then when they did the television series, they decided they wanted the dance teacher to be, you know, a real dancer and a little younger, so they asked me if I would do it. And I said, yeah, if I can be responsible for the choreography. So they said, yeah, and I said, yeah, and that turned into my whole career because being on fame beyond the choreography, which was amazing, you know, three Emmy Awards, it was like all of that, being nominated, winning this, that, and the other. But it was like being in film school for six years because I learned everything I needed to know pretty much a lot of what I needed to know on the job. As a choreographer, I was so responsible for how we shot the numbers. Sometimes directors would go home and let me just hit it for them since I knew what we needed to do. And then I became a director, and uh, it was great working. uh, You know, it was a different time. There were very few women behind the scenes. It was just my script supervisor and my costume designer and me. So fame was great. You know, we toured the world. We excited the world. 
you know, we were the grandmother of Glee. Yeah, ex- yeah exactly, yes. <laughs> Glee and Rise mm-hmm. and Step Up, all the shows that want to recapture the spirit of what we did. It all started with fame, yeah. You mentioned uh, being one of very few women in production. Have you ever felt that you had an extra challenge being a woman and a director and producer? It came up for sure one time where it was... It behooves me to snatch somebody and talk bad to them and get them in their place. And then it was uh, also always there because it was so often I was the only woman in the room and uh, the only black person in the room. So it was all of that. But I never did go to work as a woman and I was doing my work as what I was being asked to do. The choreographer, the creative consciousness of the Oscars, you know, I choreographed the Academy Award seven times. I performed on it twice, so that's wow. a pretty good record. Yeah, I would say. Uh huh. I would say. Um, you you do so much. Is there is there like do you have a certain love for one over the other? Like, do you have a passion for it, or is it just everything? No, I love all of it, and uh, it comes and it goes, and so I just take take it on as it comes. You know, I have a, a a theater piece called Freeze Frame, Stop the Madness, that really addresses gun violence in this country. It's a musical, and I am determined to get it up. I am determined to make it amazing and take it where it needs to go. That's a very important issue. Every day in mm-hmm. the news, you hear more more bad things about that. And I saw a, yeah. a little bit about the that that you're producing, and uh, it, it's uh, I think it's important. And the you were saying how. Um, you have to keep updating it because so many different things happen. Yes, I have to keep rewriting it. So I'm determined to get it out there to the world, and uh, we'll see when that happens. Do you think it'll ever get better? I hope so. I hope so. I think if we can get Congress to act properly and get us some sensible gun laws in place, that would minimize the danger for just children and young people you know, going to school. Or in church. I, I just think it's a time where it, it has to be life first beyond before it's money. Mm, agreed. It's It's got to be life first. Agreed. Tell me a little bit about your uh, trying to make a campaign about a studio. Well, I have a capital campaign. Um, we have a building that was uh, bought for the Debbie, the Debbie Allen Dance Academy is quite an oasis for young people and older people. And we have so many different programs for different people. Uh, it's just an oasis for the community and those that are very serious about dance. They want a career. My dancers are everywhere. They dance. They've danced in lines and Alvin Ailey complexions. They're on the road with Beyonce. They're on the road with Rihanna. They're on television choreographing, you know, they're everywhere. And so I, I'm, I'm in a, in a position right now that I can, can really have a state of the art studio. And I'm really excited about this gift that has been given to us, this, this building and land. And now we're ready to go in and build a new studio. And it, I have to raise probably about, I would say about six, seven million dollars to do it. And that's a lot. That's a big ask, but I'm I'm determined to get it done. How can people help with that? Well, they can go on our website, the Debbie Allen Dance Academy, and donate 
you know, if I had a million people that donated a dollar, I'd be <laughs> a lot closer, you know. There you go. It's uh it's a wonderful thing to do. I feel like this is a whole new purpose in my life. I start students at the age of four years old, and they go all the way from four to 95. I have um, classes called Calibri Arts, which is for our elder students. I have a class called Joy, Journey of Yourself, which is a fantastic spiritual class that is designed specifically for people who are uh, just been diagnosed or survivors of cancer, and it's Im- amazing. I have, um, you know, the early birds at the four to seven year olds. You know, I have all of these guys, the, the academy, those kids that are very serious about dance, that really want to make this a profession. That's what they're thinking. I have teachers that come from all over the world, from the Bolshoi, Alvin Ailey, just everywhere. And we teach flamenco, ballet, hip hop, tap, everything. And so I am determined to get this space. And so if they go on our website, Debbie Allen Dance Academy, they'll see how they can donate. Or they can hit me up on my uh, Instagram, the real Debbie Allen, and um, say what they'd like to do. Uh, do, do you uh, still ever get in there and uh, teach a class yourself? Absolutely. Yeah? I do. That's awesome. I'll be teaching the whole month of July. I teach uh, the I teach the um, the Calibri Arts class. I teach the Joy class when I can. I also have a musical theater program called Rise. Oh, awesome! And that happened. That was before the TV show. <laughs> a year before I called it oh, Rise. Maybe that's yeah. where they got it. Yeah, I don't know, but that's what it's called, Rise. Uh, and uh, your classes are for both uh, girls and boys, right? Absolutely. We're looking. We're getting ready to have a big audition to look for more young men. That is our big goal. That is our big goal. So we're going to, you know, have an audition citywide and we're going to put it out there on the internet. And I'm going to look to bring as many young men into the school and I have a sponsor that's very interested in sponsoring them. So this is going to be great. Was dance always a passion in your life? Do you, like, when's the earliest you remember, like, loving dance? since I could breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I came out dancing. I really do think I did. Yeah. It's, it's, it's led me to all of these wonderful things I do. Dance led me to choreography and to acting, to directing, producing, all of that. A lot of people uh, don't have the longevity that you've had in Hollywood. And like, do you have uh, different generations of people that know you for different things? There's a whole generation of young people that knew me from That's So Raven. I was director (laughs) of Raven. I did some of her best episodes, her big musical episodes that people copied what we did. But, yeah, it was um, people know me from That's So Raven. People know me from Fame. People know me from Grey's Anatomy. There's a whole another generation of young people that are watching Grey's Anatomy. And they know I'm Jackson's mom, and that's what they (laughs) love. Uh, they want to know about Jackson. <laughs> Are there people who, you know, think of me from uh, Quantum Leap or the Academy Awards? They're, you know, different people know me for different things. So uh, is your uh, full-time days uh, working on uh, Grey's Anatomy now? Well, it's Grey's Anatomy and the Debbie Allen Dance Academy. I'm jumping from one to the other on a daily basis. We're on hiatus from Grey's Anatomy right now. And we'll go back in August. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation, and it was nice to remember all those wonderful things. Thank you so much for this moment. And we're back. That was a great interview. Uh, Albie had such insightful questions. Like, I found it really interesting to listen yeah, to. Yeah, thank you again, Albie. I really loved hearing what she had to say about uh, about working with uh, Rondi and that. So uh, that was some good insight into what uh, happened behind the scenes. Yeah, for sure. And it brings a level of interest to this episode that I otherwise would never have had. So it's just terrific. What a great get. And I just also want to thank Hayden. Hayden's the one that got this for us. Yes, thank you, Hayden. Well done, Hayden. Really, buddy. Great job. And hey, you guys, you know, we had feedback based on another interview that Hayden was instrumental in getting us. It was Facebook feedback in response to our interview with Richard Hurd. Yeah. So James G. Connolly contacted us to say, still listening to the Richard Hurd interview. And wow, the best interview so far. The bar has been set pretty darn high. Thank you, sir, for your time. And yes, please, I'd tune into a Sliders podcast. <laughs> I think James, he's given us our marching orders we were talking about doing a Sliders podcast last time. You know, I feel like we'd have a lot of stuff to make fun of with Sliders, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Much more than a reused Captain Galaxy costume, that's for sure. Yeah, I think if we want to make fun of it, maybe we skip the first two seasons. Um, if we want a quality podcast, maybe we just focus on the first two and then quietly let it die. Excuse me, do you not remember this first season episode where they're rapping about Keats? <laughs> I put that out of my mind. You cannot tell me there's not stuff to make fun of in the first couple uh, seasons. <laughs> yes. Okay, fair point, fair point. <laughs> I think if we want a real quality Sliders podcast, we just don't do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, the Richard Hurd interview, I thought it was great. Like, um, I, the Future Boy episode, I think, is my favorite of the ones we've done so far. Like, I, I really enjoyed how that one came out. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I thought it was amazing. And thank you again, Mr. Hurd, if you're listening. And thank you, James G. Connolly, for reaching out to us on Facebook. James had more to say, but I think the other half of his feedback is going to be in Hayden's first uh, bonus show, second show. And uh, that will be coming out soon, folks. We're still waiting on a timeline for that, but just keep watching that feed. And if you'd like to be like James and contact us, there are many ways that you can do so. You can call us on the phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. And also hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at quantumleappod. Uh, if you want to go that extra mile, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. And just remember, we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the podcast. You know what? I think like uh, whenever you say like there are many ways, it just keeps going higher and higher every time. <laughs> well, Albie started that trend, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm just trying to live up to the spirit ways, of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon I'm going to need a vice in here. and uh, you know. Dogs will hear you. <laughs> well, if you'd like to contact us, you can try one of those many ways. Uh, but for now, we're going to be moving on to the next thing. 
Next time, we're going to be talking about Piano Man. Oh, Chris isn't going to sing again, is he? We're going to get into some Billy Joel here. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm a Long Islander, a Long Island's own troubadour, Mr. Billy Joel. Sing us a song. You're the Quantum oh. Leap Podcast. <laughs> I feel like you're just too focused on the uh, on the music. You're getting a little too girly here. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, nothing girly about Billy Joel. Ay, ay, ay. Oh, name that one. Come on, that's a deep cut. There's something girly about that singing. That was Downeaster Alexa. Thank you very much. Named after it's kind of Kermity, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about Piano Man. I feel like most episodes I'm going to be excited about. So <laughs> you're an excitable person. I guess. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's one of my favorite songs of mine, and I'm sure one of yours. And that's. Feelings, feelings, feelings. Yes, well, it's about now. It'd probably be a good time to take a little pause to the old cause. So, ah, uh, uh, play somewhere for me. Somewhere. Come on, Chuck. Do it for me. Oh boy. I'm looking forward to Piano Man, so let's play ourselves out. Oh. <laughs> I've been Alison Pregler. I've been Christopher DeFilippis. I'm feeling really played out. And I've been Matt the Bob Dale. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pull that off, can I? <laughs> I don't know. That's all, folks. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris. With voice talent and contributions from Zoe Dean and Hayden McQueenie. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Allison, and Christopher DeFilippis. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Muro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. But where it gets really interesting is when Valerie yes. is the one that swoops in and blindsides. God help me. What is the name of the dancer? Andrea? What? Oh, the, <laughs> the main Diana. character? The deaf, the deaf woman? <laughs> yeah. Diana. Uh, uh -huh. Diana. Okay, so, okay. So. Mm. Uh, sorry, it's just taking a moment to load up. I don't. <sighs> it's ladies now. And I'm feeling I feel it's right. right. It's ladies now. I love that, that shot of. Uh, of Sam being pushed through Al while he's dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that Dan Dean, you can tell, like, he, he can honestly dance like no one's looking because nobody is, but he would be dancing like that anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
why did they have to make Diana's character or Diane? I, I keep saying Diane. Why did they have to make Diane's character just it's this? It's Diana. It's Diana. <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound good? Great work. <laughs> yeah. Allison, you're a natural at this. Jeez, hey. Allison, I'm keeping it tight. We're an hour here, so that's perfect. Hey, and I'm not, I'm not just being nice so I can stay. <laughs> in your new regime. I'm a tyrant. It yeah. was great, Allison. No, really, that was terrific. <laughs> I have some notes, Allison. You can approve of them. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. I saw you. Man, everybody got agents. <laughs>